Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. Tonight, I want to begin with a report on this year's salmon run. I have some preliminary numbers I can share from the Eel and Noyo rivers, but it's important to understand that these observations are just snapshots of what is happening overall, and they only reflect fish observations at known monitoring stations. These estimates also do not reflect all of the fish that couldn't be counted during high flow conditions. In the lower eel, there's a portable acoustic camera that can detect images. And this was deployed on October 20th, prior to the first significant rainfall we received on the north coast. And the first presumed Chinook salmon, or king salmon, passed the camera during the morning hours of October 21st. Shortly afterwards, there were significant numbers of adult and jack Chinook salmon that passed the camera, and high numbers of Chinook salmon continue to pass the camera throughout the month of October. The fish numbers have decreased a little during the first half of November, and right now, there's, about, there's an expanded estimate of about 400 fish that have been enumerated from November 1st through November 15th. The total expanded estimate of Chinook salmon passing by this camera right now is 2,058 Chinook salmon. Much farther upstream at the fish ladder at Cape Horn Dam or Van Arsdale Fish Ladder, um, there were 143 Chinook salmon that were counted during the week of November 8th through the 14th. And the season total for Chinook stands at 364 individuals. I don't have an expanded estimate for this site at this time. Those are just the actual numbers of fish that were counted as they went through the fish ladder. And then here on the Mendocino Coast, there's another monitoring station on the South Fork Noyo River. And even though there have been good conditions for salmon migration recently, um, the Noyo River tends to receive more coho salmon, and it's still a little early for their spawning run. However, the season total for fish observed at the South Fork Noyo station includes three coho salmon and one Chinook. It is still early in the salmon migration season, so these early numbers aren't necessarily any kind of indication of what the overall salmon runs will be like this year in California. That ultimately will be dictated by the number of adult fish that survived ocean conditions and return to our rivers and streams, and the amount of stream flow that we have, um, which is related to the amount of rainfall that we get. Uh, most Forecasts for the long term are skeptical about whether this year will have a, a average rainfall year on the California northern coast or a below average rainfall year. So there's time yet to determine what will happen with our our salmon runs, and and it's also important to know that you know Chinook salmon tend to run first, and they can tend to also occupy a lot larger river systems like the eel 
coho salmon start running around this time of year and we're, we'll run into the new year and steelhead generally don't start running until December or January. So lots of time ahead to see what our final salmon numbers will look like. It seems fitting to discuss the salmon run tonight before I share an interview that I recorded last week with Captain Lucas Bissett. He's the executive director of the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, or AFTA for short, and he's also a saltwater fishing guide in Louisiana. I was able to interview Lucas in July 2020 about the Sustaining America's Fisheries for the Future Act, which is an act of legislation introduced by Congressman Jared Huffman and Ed Case from Hawaii, which is a bill to amend and reauthorize the Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation and Management Act, or the MSA for short. And this is the primary law that governs marine fisheries management in U.S. federal waters. The MSA has not been reauthorized since 2006, This new bill was introduced in July 2021, and it had one of its first hearings last week in the subcommittee of the House of Natural Resources. The bill seeks to address the changing needs of the fishing industry and coastal communities. It would build on the successes of the past, like addressing overfishing, while addressing newer threats like climate change and impacts to marine environments and sustainable fisheries. I was fortunate to sit down with Lucas again to discuss what's going on with the reauthorization, why it is important, and also why it is timely. And as a reminder to all of you listening, this interview and the show are pre-recorded. Tonight, Lucas is here to provide some updates about the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation and Management Act, which was first passed in 1976 and is currently uh, up for reauthorization for the third time, I believe. Isn't that right? Uh, Yeah, so we had 06... 16, or no, uh, 96, 06, and then 16 was supposed to be, and we're still working on that one. So, yeah, third time. What led to the kind of desire or need to reauthorize the Magnuson-Stevens Act? Yeah, so um, you are correct. It was uh, Congressman Jared Huffman from uh, right there in your neck of the woods in California, and then um, Congressman Ed Case from Hawaii, uh, both of which who have been working on this reauthorization for some time now. Um, you know, the, like any other sort of major uh, bill or act within our congressional halls, you know, the need to update, make sure that it still um, kind of fits the bill, if you will, for what we're working on. And knowing that, you know, technology and other things increase and get better, uh, it, it means that there's opportunities and needs to uh, to reauthorize this bill, um, like other things like the Farm Bill and, um, you know, Clean Water Act, things like that. There, there's always going to be a need to make sure that you have the most up-to-date information and methods when it comes to, you know, managing our, our fisheries. And so uh, this bill is, is no exception. 
And so um, Congressman Huffman took on this endeavor, uh, being that he is the chairman of the subcommittee for uh, Waters, Oceans, and Wildlife in the Natural Resource Committee. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's what they've been working on now since, like you said, long before July, but uh, they, were, they finally introduced um, actual language and text uh, in July of this year. And uh, that has been floating around within the subcommittee. And they actually had a hearing yesterday uh, where they heard testimony from witnesses uh, within the subcommittee to talk about that reauthorization bill. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot going on this week um, in the news. Uh, um, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but you know, it was two days ago that the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill was also passed. So lots, lots yeah. going on in D.C. this week. So yeah, so my understanding was that you know, initially Huffman and Case um, kind of went on an information gathering uh, mission where they visited all kinds of coastal communities and fishing communities and were having discussions with them about what's working under the existing act and what's not working and then came up with um, some updates to the legislation and and we've talked about this on the show before but uh, the the some of the updates that they have include um, Streamlining access to disaster relief funds, uh, increasing funds to support seafood marketing and working waterfronts, and uh, improving flexibility on timelines, like rebuilding stocks um, and the timelines for, for specific stocks. But another thing that came up that they're, they're going to change the term of overfished to depleted. And I don't know why, but I find that kind of interesting. And I was wondering, since, since you are a recreational guide yourself and work with other uh, commercial and recreational fishermen, um, I was wondering, like, how important is that to have this kind of terminology change? Yeah, so uh, I'll go back just a minute to the listening sessions that you were talking about that uh, Congressman mm -hmm. Huffman put on around the country, uh, one of which was in New Orleans, Louisiana where I am, and so I was able to attend that uh, listening session. Um, you know, I thought it was extremely important the way that he did that, making sure that, that everyone from within the fishery uh, and all the, you know, sort of sectors were being represented to understand what it was that was working and wasn't working in the bill. I thought that that was a, a really appropriate and, and, and well-respected, um, you know, sort of method in making sure that everyone's voice was heard and that this would be as bipartisan of a reauthorization as the, the ones of the past have been. Um, so I commend Congressman Huffman for that work. Uh, on the word depleted versus overfished, I mean, it's one of those things that I completely agree with you, that there's, there's a lot of change that's been taking place, and there's a lot more things that affect our fisheries than just fishing. Um, but that being said, we, uh, the only thing that I would want to be careful about when changing that term would be to make sure that right now the only lever that we can really pull in order to make sure that our stocks remain healthy and more importantly remain abundant enough to be resilient to these changes that are happening through climate is that we don't take away the opportunity to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to manage these stocks 
to abundance and that, you know, by changing the word overfished to depleted, that we're not giving an out, if you will, to an opportunity to make sure that we're maintaining the, uh, you know, sort of the time-honored tradition of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is to, um, you know, at least as of 1996 and then and then again in 06, uh, to really make sure that there's some some building back provisions that are going to make sure that the the stocks are protected from being overfished. So, um, you know, I don't know how important it is to anglers to to have that that language change. I know that was one thing that a lot of folks really wanted to um, wanted to see changed because they thought that overfished put a lot of negative sort of implication on the act of fishing, and that you're correct, it isn't the only way that you would have a depletion of a stock. But that being said, you know, noting that as long as there isn't an, a, then an, an out or a loophole from, you know, the only lever that we currently have to pull in order to protect our fisheries, uh, I would just want to be mindful of that due to that change. How can this bill help both protect fisheries and enhance a um, fisheries-based economy? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you answer one with the other, really, is that, you know, there's so many changes that are taking place at such a rapid rate around our coasts in the United States due to climate change that our fisheries management practices have to be updated in order to incorporate that into the system. And so you have things like ecosystem-based management, where instead of looking at a stock as a singular fish, you're looking at it as the entire habitat that's around the fish, the, the food that it's eating, you know, the, the entire food web and how it all interacts with each other. And that kind of incorporation through this reauthorization is really going to give us an opportunity to start making better decisions and more informed decisions around some of the changes that we're seeing due to climate change. And then, you know, beyond that would be like looking at migratory stocks that are moving north because of warming waters and warming temperatures and how that's going to affect, again, predator-prey relationships. So that's why you'll see that there's a forage fish component to this and understanding what those relationships look like, understanding what the ecosystem can sustain based on these moving stocks, and then ultimately looking at how we, uh, you know, sort of manage based on the fact that 10 years ago you had, you know, fish X living, you know, spot on the coast, and now they're a thousand miles north. And what does that mean for that fishery? What does it mean in the way that we used to uh, manage the area that they originally came from? You know, and some of these things along the eastern seaboard are being done state by state. And so how is it that North Carolina can adjust to not having, you know, a certain fish that now they have in New Jersey? And so making sure that we're looking at that process as a whole and making sure that we're, make, we're taking into account these dramatic changes is how the, you know, this reauthorization is really going to address that. And then the second component is how do you maintain this economic you know, opportunity through fishing is that you have to be able to keep up with what climate change is doing to put our fisheries in peril. And if you don't, then the economy part of it goes away anyway. So it's addressing you know, this climate-ready fishery opportunity and understanding, one, how is climate change actually changing the area? How are we incorporating that into our scientific regimes and our management regimes? And how are we going to address 
you know, the way that this stuff is changing on such a rapid rate in order to make sure that we're more proactive in the way that we're managing instead of reactive, which has been traditionally the way that we, we manage our fisheries, is that you wait for there to be a problem and then you address it. Well, how do we get in front of that curve knowing that climate change is throwing so many, so many changes, for lack of a better term, at us that we're able to make sure that we're still managing to an abundant level so that the fishery can actually maintain climate resilience. And then if that's the case, then I think you're going to see the economy come along with it. That's a good point. I mean, if, if we've learned anything, uh, and, and, and Magnuson-Stevens and the Endangered Species Act and, and other legislative acts uh, that have been created as a result of being reactive, not proactive to changes, in the environment, if we've learned anything, it takes a really long time. Once a population has kind of been depleted or its populations are, are, are getting so low that it triggers significant concern and then action by agencies, usually at that point, we've kind of missed our window of opportunity to actually make effective change in a reasonable time frame. And I always am thinking about that with the restoration work that I do. It's like, you know, there's this desire for there to be kind of an immediate uh, benefit from any restoration action that's taken. And I always think, you know, it took years for these populations and for these habitats to be impacted. And, and, the, and, and so as such, it's going to take us years to get them back too. So if we can be proactive and get ahead of habitat declines, which will result in population decline, we may be able to actually, you know, be more effective at our actual um, resource management and we can probably save a lot of money in the in the meantime too, right? <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's important to note that, you know, you as well as me understand that nature can typically take care of itself as long as you give it enough of a runway to stay ahead of the curve. The problem is, like you said, once you get down to that depletion level, that doesn't mean that they can recover on their own. It's typically when you have to see these dramatic steps being taken in order to try and actually give them a chance. And sometimes it's too far gone, you know, depending on how long the fish lives, you know, how, how old it is before they're, you know, sexually viable. I mean, there, there's all sort of, you know, components that go into this. And so, you know, the, the, the point of this reauthorization and looking at climate resilience and climate ready fisheries is making sure that you give them the opportunity to fix themselves and leaving enough of the stock behind in order to give them that chance. I mean, that's the main thing, and I think that's what you were alluding to with the work that you're doing, is that, you know, even a, even a, a habitat can replenish itself to a certain degree, but once you get down below critical mass, it, it becomes almost impossible without some intervention in order to get there. And so, you know, the goal would be that despite changing the term from overfished to depleted, we have to recognize that that still means step needs to be taken in order to keep us to a point where these fisheries can maintain themselves and we're not being forced to shut them completely down or to have closed seasons or to, you know, do these things that are going to bite into the economic opportunity that you were talking about. And so, you know, it's, it's really important that we start to take in and address all of those components whenever we're looking at these new, 
issues that we're facing in climate change because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves continually behind the eight ball and we're going to have to do these major intervention and, and, you know, really stepping in to create these very draconian style uh, management regimes in order to be able to just protect the species from going extinct beyond, you know, much less give you an opportunity to fish for them. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about the reauthorization is that it seems like it's really trying to build in more flexibility. You know, it's, it's in addition to making sure that decisions are being made off of sound science and making sure that there's the technology available to provide data to build that sound science. It's, it's, seems like one of the kind of objectives of the reauthorization is to, to, is to make the, is to build in some flexibility so that there is more of an ability to make decisions that make sense in specific areas and as conditions change over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, flexibility is, is a funny word. You know, it can be it can be used by different people to mean different things. And and so, if you've been in this sort of struggle as long as I have, you realize that sometimes flexibility has a negative con connotation, depending on who's using it. But I understand what you're saying with flexibility, and and in this sense, you know, as far as it just it it takes away. Well, that's not the right word. It 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 adapts the framework of the bill in order to make sure that we're incorporating the best, you know, the best science and best things that we have available based on today in order to make decisions that will, you know, hopefully properly affect and positively affect the, you know, the species that we love to go out and target. And then also at the same time, understand that there's going to be dramatic changes that take place in certain regimes because of these migrating stocks or these, you know, food food webs and, and things that are just changing dramatically because of of the, uh, the the northward march of of many of these species. So, yeah, I absolutely agree that flexibility in the sense of you know the the maneuverability of our managers to be able to go in and make <coughs> excuse me make decisions based on you know kind of what's happening today versus looking at it through the lens of you know a more archaic portion of the bill is is extremely important just because i mean let's face it we are we're looking at a playbook here that we don't really understand in a lot of ways i mean climate and and, and i can attest personally because <laughs> earlier when you were talking about storms and habitat loss and you know water quality issues here in louisiana i see it all so um, you know, it's, it's really daunting at times to see all the changes that are taking place and all the things that our fisheries and our managers are facing. And so, yeah, having the ability to, uh, to, be, to be mobile and flexible and uh, be able to be malleable at times whenever there's just no real answer, um, simply because we're facing things that we've never dealt with before, uh, this reauthorization uh, brings that opportunity to the forefront because, uh, you know, Huffman and Case recognize that it's a big part of how we're going to manage in the future. So Magnuson-Stevens was originally established to prevent overfishing, to rebuild 
stocks of fish that are depleted to increase economic and social benefits and to make sure that there's like a safe and sustainable supply of seafood. So from your perspective, what is this authorization? How is this reauthorization um, either building off of those initial objectives or changing them today? Um, I mean, you know, the, originally the, the bill was created to get foreign fishing fleets out of our waters in order to protect the commercial interests of our fishing fleets. Um, over the time, that has been, you know, changed to uh, manage more of our fisheries through not only commercial interests, but also recreational and then for hire, which are the three sectors. And through, and through every reauthorization, we saw this sort of upgrade in, um, in the way that we use technology and, and what we were uh, doing to uh, figure out, you know, sort of the universe of fish and also the universe of fishing people. And so, um, you know, this, this reauthorization builds off of that historical, um, you know, sort of method that we've used in the past of saying, okay, what are the problems of today? And how do we need to continually, you know, change this bill in order to address those problems? And I think that you're seeing that very clearly happening through climate. I think you're also seeing some tweaks to certain components of the way that we collect information around catch effort for, for anglers. Because what we're finding is that, you know, some of the other uh, some more historical methods of management, so like MRIP, for instance, which is the Marine Recreational Information Program, um, you know, that wasn't really designed for, uh, you know, sort of real-time management. That was really designed for more of looking at things in a longer um, sort of window of opportunity, so say a year. Um, and so we've we started to incorporate um, other methods of collecting catch data from anglers in order to get that more real-time, um, you know, sort of feedback in order to, to know in a, in a short window of time what's happening with the stock, how much of the stock has been taken, and are we getting close to our, our annual catch limit, which is one of the components that was introduced in 2006 and was a major improvement over the way that we uh, managed our stocks in the past. So, you know, knowing when we're getting close to that annual catch limit is extremely important. And so I, I think what we're seeing is this, uh, you know, sort of continual march towards, you know, quote unquote perfection <laughs> in the way that we manage our fisheries. And I think the steps that we're taking in this reauthorization are going to be significant knowing that the problems we're facing are so different and so significant than we have in the past. I'm kind of curious because there is so much going on in politics right now and there's just, you know, a myriad of issues that could be, you know, addressed in any <laughs> under any uh legislative time frame. You know, I imagine when you're working with policymakers to try to ensure that these types of reauthorizations take place, you probably get some pushback about, well, this isn't a priority for us, and let me know if that isn't any of the feedback that you're getting. But I am curious, like, what do you say to people when they tell you 
that this isn't the most important issue that we should be working on right now? Like, why is this an important um, piece of legislation to look at and reauthorize right now? Well, call me a, a dreamer at heart, but I honestly believe that the angling community has an opportunity to really start a national conversation around climate change that's more realistic than anything we've seen in the past as far as addressing climate change, not only through adaptation, but through mitigation. Because ultimately, if we're going to make a difference in this, in this global issue, it's going to be through the mitigation of you know, carbon and other things that we're, we're dealing with. And so looking at it through that perspective, I would tell someone who has asked me that question about the level of importance, it would be that by addressing this issue in our fisheries, not only are we not destroying or allowing to be destroyed one of the most amazing, you know, parts of our planet, which are the oceans, but also that we as anglers are seeing this climate change and what's happening to our fisheries in real time. And so that you have ready-made storytellers who can relay that to the middle of the country where they may not feel like they're seeing it the same way, or to people who are still having trouble seeing the correlation between what's happening within our planet and, and climate change. And so to me, I think that right now, in a time of this political uncertainty that we live in, and this sort of disconnect between science and, and politics and what's going on there, that we should be focusing on this now more than ever because you have an opportunity for the everyday average person who doesn't have to have a scientific background or degree to be able to say, I see issues I've never seen before. We need to address those. And so if, even if they're not calling it climate change, as long as they're willing to admit that things are different and they need to be addressed, to me that's the start of a conversation that's going to be bigger than just our fisheries so that we can actually start addressing this existential crisis that's climate. Right. I guess this gets back to your point of being proactive and not reactive too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I mean, anytime you can set precedent, anytime that you can start something and, and, and prove its value, and that that can then be implemented other places. I mean, let's face it. I, I mean, you talk about sort of feedback that you get whenever you're working on this stuff. One of the things that I hear all the time is like, why should I care? I fish for steelhead, you know, or I fish for, you know, brown trout in, in Montana. But, you know, honestly, the thing that connects all this stuff together is climate. And we're seeing the same issues, but maybe slightly differently manifested in these freshwater areas and in different parts of the country. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing uh, you know, algal blooms in areas that have never seen them before. We're seeing hoot owl restrictions that are earlier in the year than they've ever been before. We've seen fires that are more damaging and destructive and earlier than we've ever seen before. I mean, we're seeing all of these different things that are affecting our everyday lives, not to mention our fisheries and our wild places. And so, you know, whenever someone says, well, you're working on the ocean, so why should I care because I'm in place X? The reality is, is that the interconnectivity of not only water, because it connects all of us in some way, shape, or form. I mean, let's face it, we're 70% water. But also because you're seeing these issues being addressed in a proactive way within our fisheries, I believe that with that precedent being set, 
you have an opportunity to then transfer that over to other other things within our lives, be it agriculture, be it the way that we, you know, deforest, be it the way that we look at, you know, how we grow food. I mean, all of these things are being affected ultimately. And so understanding how we addressed it in fisheries could very easily show us how to implement it in other parts of our life. If you're just tuning in, that was Captain Lucas Bissett, the executive director of the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, which is a group of guides, outfitters, fly shops, and travel companies that are dedicated to the sustainable growth of the sport of fly fishing, but also to the individual businesses and industry that surround that. And Lucas has been a real spokesman for the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act lately, and this is a bill that has been um, sponsored and co-authored by Congressman Jared Huffman. And I am Anna Halligan, and you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. The remainder of my interview with Lucas Bissett was focused on the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, or Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which was signed into law on November 15th. The bill is frequently referred to as a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Essentially, it is a $1.2 trillion investment to address America's vast infrastructure needs to protect and restore watershed resilience and to enable the nation's green energy future. These funds will be distributed amongst several federal agencies and will be directed towards projects that improve water quality, improve um, forest conditions to safeguard against catastrophic wildfires. The funds will remove fish passage barriers, improve roads, remove dams, restore floodplains, um, improve irrigation and water supply, safeguard against drought impacts, They'll be targeting estuary restoration and stormwater management and abandoned mine cleanup, in addition to addressing and improving aging infrastructure throughout the U.S. In an effort to understand how one of these acts of legislation relates to the other, I asked Lucas how the Sustaining America's Fisheries for the Future Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill work together and how one can complement the other. Well, I, I'm disappointed that you don't want to call it the BIF. <laughs> I mean, everybody oh, I wants it. to call this the <laughs> BIF. I mean, come on, it's the BIF. <laughs> uh, no, in, in all seriousness. I mean, these two things complement each other because, you know, one of the things that we've always seemed to struggle with whenever these reauthorizations come through is how do you fund this stuff? Right. I mean, like every one of these agencies who are working on stuff. So in this case, it'd be NOAA and NIMPS uh, to use a couple acronyms. You know, they need to have money in order to do this work. And so the fact that you're having a once in a lifetime, and I believe that a once in a lifetime windfall of money that's to be spent on our natural places. These two things to me happen perfectly, in, you know, in simpatico because it's this opportunity to, to fund this work in a truly valuable way and not just piecemeal it together 
you know, the way it's kind of been done in the past where it's like agency X gets a little bit of dollars and agency Y gets a little bit here and it's never enough to really do the work, but they try. I mean, this is an opportunity that we've never seen before and probably will never see again. And so knowing that there's going to be opportunity to actually fund this stuff in a meaningful way at a time when we arguably need it more than ever. I mean, to me, that's a beautiful marriage of opportunity and that's something you just don't see most of the time when we're talking about how governmental agencies are going to get stuff done. So to me, these two work together beautifully and harmoniously, and, and it's, a, it's a very opportunistic for uh, both to be kind of moving through Congress, although the BIF has, has now been signed by uh, President Biden. But, um, you know, if, if the reauthorization were to happen, it would be one of the few times that it actually is going to have some money to be able to do some of this work. Right. I mean, it really is a huge investment in the future, but it's interesting because, you know, conservation is kind of a, it's like a slow incremental game and it can take decades to protect and restore, um, you know, freshwater and marine habitats. And so it's interesting because, you know, it's, it's, it's a ton of money coming in a five year time frame. I think it, it really is going to, you know, set a, it's going to move a lot of ongoing efforts forward that, that may have been, you know, stagnant due to a lack of funding. Um, but do you have any thoughts about that, about how this is a, a huge influx of funding in a very short period of time? Some of these agencies have to figure out how they're going to spend, how their budgets, who have gone from maybe like, you know, a few, you know, 10 million a year to now 80 million a year. And I'm just using arbitrary num numbers as a frame of reference. But, but I mean, they have to figure out how to have, how to spend funding and have their budgets increase in significant magnitudes of order. I mean, how effective do you think that's going to be? Do you have any concerns about how, um, short and relatively short in term influx of funding will play out over the long term. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're when you're looking at this situation and sort of the abbreviated timeline that these uh, agencies are going to work off of, I mean, not to be critical, but typically bureaucracy is not the most fast moving of, uh, you know, of, of vehicles. And so, yeah, I mean, what I would fear if I was going to put on my negative hat for a moment, would be to say that, you know, are we going to be able to take advantage of this opportunity in, a, in the most meaningful way possible, in the most impactful way possible, knowing that there's such an abbreviated timeline on investing into the future? You know, it's like, yeah, we're investing into the future, but only for five years. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a disconnect, I think, in, in sort of opportunity. But you know, I, I, I try to remain optimistic because it is more money than we've ever seen. And so I want to make sure that we, uh, we are doing everything in our, in our power to, to help these agencies. And this is where, you know, organizations like yours at TU, organizations like mine at AFTA, we have an opportunity to make sure that we're helping to put this money into areas that are, are truly in need. And the way that I've been looking at it sort of as a whole would be, kind of working in the same way that water flows. So thinking about it from the start of rivers like the Mississippi, and then working your way through the country in the same sort of migratory pattern of water, 
and then working our way out into our oceans, to me, seems like a great way to try to implement this. Because one of the things that I want to see as we're working through this process is that there's some sort of cohesion in, you know, sort of like the practices that we're trying to implement in order to make better, you know, climate resilient areas, in order to make biodiversity happen in, in areas that hasn't had it for a while. And then ultimately in creating these natural places that people can recreate and have a great time. And so, you know, looking at it in that sort of capacity of starting from the, the source of water and then moving our way through, uh, through dam removal, through weir removal, through, you know, riparian uh, repair, through uh, restoration, you know, through uh, reclamation. There's all these different methods, obviously, that we're going to go through. But uh, ultimately, I think if we kind of follow that, that, that path, it gives us a starting point, and then we can kind of work out from there. The other thing that I think is extremely important, and especially for us in the, in the world of fly fishing, is looking at areas that are currently sort of nature-starved and places that people don't currently have opportunity to get out into nature in the same way that I do in Louisiana. And so looking at those areas that may have some, you know, disrepaired stream or a lake or other body of water that hasn't seen attention maybe ever. Um, you know, maybe there's a trash cleanup opportunity. Maybe there's a biodiversity opportunity and vegetation. Um, you know, looking at those areas as an opportunity to not only repair something that's, that's been in, in disrepair for some time, but also to create a new opportunity to have people go out and get to experience nature in a meaningful way that can actually be a life-altering opportunity. I truly believe that fishing and being in nature has a, a very, you know, transformative quality to it. I know it kept me out of trouble when I was a kid. It was something that I leaned on no matter what part of my life I was in. And so for me, I think it would be great to see people who don't normally uh, have these opportunities in underserved communities and BIPOC communities and indigenous communities to, to give them the same opportunities that we have through the repair of these streams or lakes or other bodies of water. And also for us as fly fishing to redefine what it means to fly fish, to redefine what it means to fish in general. Because right now I think there's a real stereotypical sort of thought process around fly fishing especially, in that you have to be standing in a river in Montana or you have to be, you know, swinging a spay rod on, uh, you know, the OP or up in the Pacific, Pacific Northwest or you need to be on a, a, a flat skiff in Louisiana or Florida. The reality is, is that you can fly fish anywhere. And so I want to redefine what it means to fish and to fly fish so that people who don't normally get into our sport have an opportunity the same way that we do to get into it. Lower barrier to entries. You know, really make sure that we're, we're working on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I think that this money would be a perfect opportunity to, you know, kill two birds with one stone, for lack of a better, you know, term, is to, to really look at it as not only stream repair that can help with nutrient sinks as we look at, you know, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, but also as an opportunity to get someone out there fishing who's never had that opportunity before, or even just a walk in nature in a place that wasn't natural in a sense, you know, because of years of neglect. And, and so for me, I think that that's, that would be, you know, my sort of grandiose <laughs> thought around what that opportunity would look like in the long run. All of these things are, you know, honestly in a response to climate change, right? And we've all, I think, in the conservation world have been trying to take these 
small incremental steps, you know, seeking funds from multiple agencies, you know, cobbling things together to get over long periods of time to, to actually get some activities um, laid out on the ground. And now there's like this opportunity to have things funded and implemented, you know, with within a very short period of time. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable. <laughs> well, and that's actually what I was going to say is that, you know, in the past, whenever you're cobbling things together, you're looking at it through that time frame right? Like it's, okay, it's going to take me, you know, two years to get the funding because I've got to go to 17 different agencies. And now it's going to be tomorrow, the money could be in your bank account. And so the, the process is going to be hopefully extremely expedited and that it'll allow us to get to work right away. You know, and, and I know that some of those uh, departments who have gotten some of this money or will be getting it are definitely looking for shovel ready opportunities to start with so that they can start, you know, really kind of implementing the, the process as quickly as possible, which, you know, is, is good to hear. I mean, you're, you're, you want to make sure that there's uh, things getting done and that it's not just sitting stagnant. But, you know, you also want there to be some, some cohesion and making sure that the, the projects that are being um, worked on are actually creating some of that climate resilience that we've talked about. The other thing that I think is really interesting about this bill is how much funding is being set aside for tribes and tribal partnerships, which I think is really important as well. And kind of getting, you know, tying into one of my kind of earlier questions about, you know, how does five years of funding really impact, um, have long-term impacts, you know, I was just thinking about like all of the money that's being set aside for dam removal. I mean, you can remove a dam in five years and that is going to be gone in perpetuity and the benefits of that will last for ever. And there's like $800 million that's going to be set aside for dam removal and it's going to be spread out across five different agencies. I mean, it's, it's really pretty remarkable how many talking points there are related to this bill um, and how many opportunities exist. It's a little overwhelming. It's, it's, it's kind of daunting, but um, it's, it's, it's very overwhelming. It's also very exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it, it, I think earlier we were talking and I said something to the effect of, you know, it's sort of like dreaming every Wednesday that you're going to win the lottery because you buy a ticket and then you finally do, but then they tell you you only have like 30 days to spend it. And so you're, you're like, I, I want to do, you know, and it's, it's really hard to find something to focus on because you've been dreaming about these opportunities for so long, but now because of the limited time frame, you're really freaking out about what it is that you can do, you know? And so it, it sort of feels like that. I mean, it's extremely exciting, like winning the lottery probably would be, but also it's extremely daunting because you're like, okay, like this is our once in a lifetime thing. You know, think about how big that is to say out loud, like you're once in a lifetime, you know, like that just doesn't happen very often in one lifetime. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting and scary all at the same time. It's, it's like a roller coaster. Yeah, it really doesn't. I mean, even um, during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was, had, also was an incredible influx of federal funds to a variety of agencies and help support many, many programs and a lot of really beneficial projects. Like this comparatively is so much bigger than that was. Yeah, um, exactly. And it is kind of hard to keep track. Like 
I was before our call. I was reviewing uh, a 19-page document, just internal document that was giving us a, a condensed summary of all of the things that this program is going to be targeting. I mean, they're, they're, in like any legislation, there's some there's some misses. Um, you know, I think a lot of people were really interested in seeing dam removal in the Lower Snake River, and, and that didn't make it in here, but. <laughs> But still having, you know, $800 million for dam removal spread out across five agencies is going to help out a lot. The infrastructure bill has been signed into law, and, and we know that in, in a really kind of it's going to be executed in kind of a rapid manner. Um, but what's the timeline for Magnuson-Stevens and um, – you know, do you, is there, are there ways that uh, people who support the reauthorization of Magnuson Stevens, are there things that people can do to help make sure that this um, legislative act uh, gets the attention that it needs and then hopefully is also signed into law? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, great question. And, you know, one I always appreciate is, is getting people activated and, and out there doing something. Um, yeah, right now, as I mentioned earlier, that we're in a in sort of a position where there was a hearing yesterday in the House of, uh, House of Natural Resource subcommittee. Um, and so, you know, kind of comments from witnesses were taken. Um, the subcommittee had an opportunity to, to ask questions which means that, you know, we're, we're still kind of in, um, you know, a bit of a, a flexible state in the sense that there could still be some markup that happens within committee uh, to the bill, um, you know, and then obviously once it, if it were to pass the House and this Congress, it would then have to go on to the Senate and uh, either be marked up there or, you know, there would be, there'd need to be some uh, reconciliation between the two. But, uh, so for now, I would say that, you know, especially there in your neck of the woods, if if people wanted to reach out to Congressman Huffman, um, you know, through his channels to let him know that, you know, the work that he's done on this bill in order to make it as bipartisan as possible and in order to make sure that he listened to all the different sectors and the different, um, you know, components of the fisheries, um, I think that would be encouraging. I think that, you know, anytime a congressperson goes out and, and really is working on something of this magnitude and this historical context, you know, anything that we can do to encourage them, I think is extremely important. And then if you have, uh, you know, a Republican uh, congressperson in your district and um, you want to reach out to them to let them know, like, hey, we would love to see something bipartisan come out, like just like the bipartisan infrastructure framework then, um, you know, let's, let's encourage our Republican uh, allies to, to support this bill as well so that we can actually get it passed and implemented and we can finally get a reauthorization after almost five years, um, you know, that we've been working on this. And so, yeah, it would be wonderful to see that happen. Um, and so, yeah, I encourage people to reach out to your congressperson. Um, we'll stick with the House of Representatives for now since that's where the bill is and um, encourage them to, uh, to get this thing out of, out of committee and, and onto the floor for a vote. And I know, I, I appreciate your, 
your optimistic outlook, um, but d d at this point in time, does it seem likely that that will happen, or you know, is there really a need to get more support behind the act to make sure that it does get on the, the floor for a vote? Well, I mean, yeah, the chances of it actually making it to the floor for a vote this year are getting slimmer by the day. Um, you know, we're, we're nearing recess. If, if that does happen, I'd heard that uh, Pelosi had wanted, uh, you know, the House to stay uh, through Thanksgiving so that they could work on uh, other things. And, and like you said earlier, you know, the, the political uh, docket is pretty full um, for Congress. And so, yeah, the chances of this making it onto the floor are pretty slim for the 117th Congress. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that a lot of times these bills will be reintroduced in the next Congress and they'll, they'll very similarly reflect what they did before. And so, um, you know, knowing Huffman's desire to get this out and, uh, and vote it on, I would say it's still good to encourage uh, him to continue to move forward in the capacity that he has been and then to encourage, again, our Republican allies on the other side of the aisle to, uh, or on the other side of his aisle to um, to try and support it as well. Right. I mean, these things, these types of, uh, this type of work really is something that builds momentum over time and then often kind of has these breakthrough moments when they can move forward. So I really appreciate you taking the time um, to sit with me and to talk about it. As usual, I have learned a lot. And I appreciate the work that you and AFTA do to make sure that these discussions are ongoing and that these types of um, initiatives are not um, stagnant because it does, you know, take time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have, to, you have to continue to push the, uh, the boulder up the hill if you ever want to get to the top. But uh, we at AFTA are happy to continue to do so. We, you know, we are all about the sustainable growth of the fly fishing industry, and I think that AFTA uh, does a really good job of, of connecting the world of ecology and economy. So uh, we're happy to continue to do it, and me and the executive director role, uh, I'm extremely happy to have this opportunity to talk to you and, and inform your listeners about uh, things that are happening in other parts of the country. Uh, and if people want to find out more about AFTA, how, where can they find you, find more information? Yes. So you would go to uh, AFFTA or AFTA.org, and uh, we have our website there that will give you every bit of information that you'd ever want to know about our organization and uh, what we work on and what we uh, try to do to help our membership and um, how we represent uh, a very, very large portion of the fly fishing industry. And that concludes my interview with Lucas Bissett, uh, which was focused on a discussion about the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act and the new passing of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Under the infrastructure bill, this new law provides the opportunity to make investments in climate resilience, habitat and water quality protection, species recovery, and habitat restoration in virtually every corner of the nation. Now is the time to begin working with agency partners to implement this legislation and to do it well. And we can do that by assisting agencies and making good strategic choices about where they invest these dollars, providing agencies with the assistance that they will need to fill workload capacity gaps that have resulted from years of budgetary neglect, 
as well as bringing forward compelling project proposals that deliver conservation benefits. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Ecology Hour on Mendocino County, public broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We stream live at kzyx.org, and we are also found on Facebook. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 